good morning. I invite you to go ahead and take out your sermon guide so you can follow along with the message. Uh, We are in week two of our sermon series called Blessed, and we are going through uh, the eight wisdom sayings or the eight Beatitudes uh, that Jesus gave in his greatest sermon ever, uh, which can be found in Matthew chapter five, verses one through twelve. And last week, what we did is we did an introduction to the Beatitudes and we talked about how the main theme of the Beatitudes is this idea of blessing, the idea of God's approval. And uh, for Jesus' disciples who were sitting on the shores of Galilee listening to this sermon, Jesus' message was one of good news. It was one of gospel. Jesus was saying, blessed or approved or the smile of God is on your life. And then he describes how they live. They're peacemakers. They are merciful. They are poor in spirit. They are meek. And we talked about last week how the invitation for us is to live into this kingdom and experience the same kind of blessing that Jesus' first disciples did. Experience the same kind of uh, approval and congratulations by God and make that the goal and the aim of our life and to come to Him out of a place of need. And then let Him fill us so that we could produce fruit that glorify and magnify his name. And we also talked about how one of the ways in which we do this is by following Jesus's example. You see, Jesus is the embodiment of these wisdom sayings. Jesus's life explains to us and shows us and paints a picture of what it looks like to be poor in spirit and mourning and meek and hungering for righteousness. And so when we pay attention to Jesus, he helps us live into this blessing that God wants for all of us. And today we're going to be looking at the first beatitude, which is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning hungry to hear from you. I pray, Father, that we would have a Kairos word this morning, that you would give us each individually and and as a community a word that will penetrate our hearts, a word that will come from your spirit, Father, that we need for this week. And I pray as we look at your scriptures, Father, that you would anoint my lips and, and the thoughts in my heart. And if there's anything that I say, that people would forget it when they walk out these doors and that they would just remember what your spirit wants to communicate to them through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before Kelly and I moved to uh, sunny Arizona, as some of you know, we lived in Louisville, Kentucky uh, for five years. And I loved Louisville, Kentucky. And one of the reasons was is because I worked at this restaurant there called KT's. And I waited tables all through seminary. And, I, and, and the one thing I loved about KT's is there was this fantastic community there. You know, there was people that I would stay after work with and we would eat and we would just talk about each other's life and share stories and laugh together. And, you know, there's just this genuine sense of community and I loved it. And I remember um, one of these nights that I was staying late talking to one of my friends, I was sitting outside and I I have this distinct memory of this conversation I had. Um, My friend and I were talking about spirituality and Christianity and this whole God and Jesus thing. And and he was an agnostic. He he did not believe Christianity was right and he knew where I stood. And so he looked at me as we were sitting outside and he said, you know what, Brandon, isn't Christianity just a crutch for those who can't make it on their own? You guys heard that before? Isn't Christianity just a crutch? You see, for him, uh, crutches are for cripples. 
And to be crippled is to be not self-sufficient. And the goal in life is to be able to just kind of plow through this world and be a self-made man or woman who's able to take it straight and not need a crutch of Christianity or not need a crutch of drugs. And so for him, this idea of a crutch was a negative thing. But as I thought about it, and I told him this, I don't think crutches are always that bad. In fact, uh, Jessica Wallace walked in here with crutches this morning. Uh, and, And that was good because she couldn't have walked. So sometimes crutches are a good thing. But I don't think the world sees it like that. The way a lot of people see life is they see it as being, um, is, is thinking that real joy and real success in life are found in the pursuit of self-reliance and self-confidence and self-determination and self-love. And what I think this leads to, this kind of inflated view of self, is it leads you and I to have a higher view of ourselves than we actually should. It leads us to overestimate our skills and our abilities. Um, fathers, I hate to pick on you. I know it's Father's Day, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, if you guys are anything like me, you think that you're an above average driver, right? Um, you know, you think, you know, sometimes you tailgate, maybe sometimes you speed or you switch lanes, you know, without flipping on your blinker. But in general, if everybody could just drive like you, the road would be a much safer place. Amen. Yeah, Bruce, amen. They, you know, people, the traffic would move quicker. Uh, there would be less accidents. You know, the 202 would be a lot more fun if everybody drove like you. But unfortunately, your self-perceived excellence makes you very ordinary. You see, in general, psychologists have found that whether we're talking about driving skills or looks or intelligence or work performance or charm, people tend to rank themselves higher than they actually are usually substantially above that. And what this is called, what cognitive psychologists call this, it's actually a field of study, is the above average effect. The the above average effect is simply the truth that we remember our strengths and our accomplishments, but we forget or minimize or attribute to bad luck when things go bad, our failures. It's interesting. There's one popular study, and they found that 70% of high school students reported that they possessed an above-average leadership skills. 70%. And only 2% said they had a below-average leadership skills. Um, In another study, they found that 94% of professors, this is amazing, said that their own scholarship was better than the norm. (laughs) People have an inflated view of self, and you see this all over the place. You see it especially in politics, don't you? I mean, especially during election cycles, you see some of these people, and it's almost laughable. They think they could change the whole country or change the whole world um, because they have this inflated view of self. Uh, You see it at the bookstore. The other day we were at the bookstore, and uh, I think we have a picture of this. There's a whole section called self-improvement. Have you guys seen this before? There's a whole self-help section, and what the section is is it's experts telling ordinary people why they don't need the experts. You know, if you just read this one book, you can be a contractor for your whole house. If you, if you just read this one book, you can master Spanish in 143 pages or, you know, perform open heart surgery. I mean, I don't know, you know, but, but the idea is that you don't need experts because we have this ego and we have this self um, in our culture and in our communities. You guys have heard this language before. Believe in yourself. You have what it takes. Love yourself. Actualize your potential. Stop listening to those voices that are negative and those nagging doubts and just move forward because you have what it takes. 
But Jesus says in Matthew, Matthew 5, 3, not so fast. Wait on, wait up. Listen to those nagging doubts. Listen to some of those negative things that are bouncing around in your head. Now, of course, he's not saying to be depressed or to hate yourself, but he is saying to come to grips with the fact that you and I are poor. None of us are self-made men or women. And that's okay. That's actually a healthy place to be. Healthy people, self-obsessed people, according to Jesus, don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Jesus says, I have come to call those who do not think they're righteous, but those who are sinners. And you see, if I could talk to my friend again, I think I would highlight the fact that Christianity is a crutch, but it's actually much more than that. It's more of an ICU for sinners. You see, all of us, all of us in this room are cripples. All of us have, have an ailment in our souls, and we are in need of a great physician. And this is precisely why Jesus says we are to be poor in spirit. But the question becomes, what exactly does it mean to be poor in spirit? And uh, the, the meaning of this phrase is really rooted in the Old Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, po- poverty wasn't just talked about in terms of physical poverty. It was also talked about in terms of spiritual poverty. And most likely when Jesus preached this sermon and when he said this beatitude, I think probably he had two passages rattling around in the back of his head. And these are both from the prophet of Isaiah. In Isaiah 57:15, we find this. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. It's shocking to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And then earlier in Isaiah, we learn this. These are the ones I look upon with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit. Those who tremble at my word. You see, for Isaiah, the high and exalted and lifted up God somehow identifies with and lives with those who have a a, a grinding heart. Those who are poor in spirit. Those who are downtrodden. Those who are contrite. And this is exactly what Jesus is picking up on in Matthew 5, 3 when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And the big idea here, the the thing that both of these authors are trying to communicate is this very simple truth. And please, please, please try to remember this. God blesses the broken and helps the helpless. God blesses the broken and helps the helpless. God helps those who are poor in spirit. He helps those who are, are spiritually bankrupt. Those who admit their need before God. And if you get this, if this sinks down into your soul, it changes the way that you see the world. It changes the way that you deal with your problems. Many of you have heard of C.K. Chesterton. And uh, C.K. Chesterton was one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. A prolific author. He was an Englishman. He was a Christian. He was a kingdom person. And he was poor in spirit. And... uh, At one point, uh, the Times of London, the newspaper, uh, was doing a series where they were asking uh, the great minds of the time this one question. And that question was, what is the problem with the universe? What is the problem with the universe? And to this, Chesterton wrote back one simple phrase. Here's what he said. The problem with the universe is me. Signed, C.K. Chesterton. And that is precisely what makes a kingdom person different than the rest of the world. To be poor in spirit is to understand that wrongdoing is not just something that's out there, but it's also something that's in here. 
After the Iron Curtain fell at the end of the Cold War, Alexander Solhezentein returned to his native Russia after years of exile. He was greeted by all kinds of people on his long journey across Russia, including um, those politicians who had tyrannized the people under the communist system, but who had stayed in office after 1989. And when he did this, a lot of people got really angry and objected. You know, how could Alexander socialize with uh, these evil politicians who had, you know, really crushed so many people and hurt so many people's lives? And to this, Dohelzenstein responded by saying this, The line between good and evil is never simply between us and them. The line between good and evil runs through each one of us. Just listen to that one more time. The line between good and evil is never simply between us and them. The line between good and evil runs right through the middle of the heart of every single person in this room. The line between good and evil isn't the line between Americans and Arabs. It's not the line between Democrats and Republicans, or liberals or conservatives, or immigrants and natives, or terrorists and the Western military. The line between good and evil runs right through the heart of every single human being. And of course there's a sense in which there's greater and lesser evil. I'm not saying that Osama bin Laden's sins are you know, equal to a 13-year-old kid that steals a candy bar. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that all of us need to admit that we are part of the problem. That this, this sin thing affects all of us and that evil and wrongdoing are not just out there, but they're also in here. And this is exactly what Jesus talks about in Luke 18, verses 10 through 14. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. This is uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in this parable, Jesus illustrates the type of person that God blesses. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. So in this story, we have two starkly different people. We have a Pharisee who was a well-respected religious teacher. He was thought to be a very moral person. He was, he'd given his life to the Lord's service. And then, on the other hand, we have this tax collector who was a leech on society, who had betrayed his fellow Israelites and was working with Rome to overtax and underpay uh, the citizens. And both of these two people go to the temple, and the Pharisee begins his prayer kind of like a psalm. He says, God, I thank you. But then, then he adds that I am not like other people. See, he's thanking God for himself, oddly enough. He thanks God that he's not like those people, those adulterers, homosexuals, party kids, shady lenders, or IRS agents. And from his prayer, it seems that God should be honored that he's on his team, that he's doing all of these righteous, good, religious things for him. 
And then on the other hand, we have this tax collector who's standing 50 yards away, pounding his head on the pavement and beating his breast and crying out to God for mercy. And the tax collector doesn't have anything to bring to the table. The tax collector doesn't have anything to offer God. And the only reason he comes to God is so that he can improve his relationship with God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That's what it means to cry out to God. This tax collector didn't probably know very much about the Bible. He he probably had a very sinful life. He had not gone to Bible college or seminary. But what he did have was a broken and contrite heart. What he did have was a genuine need to be filled by God. And God blesses that and God honors that. And God says that that's the kind of people that he increases. But here's the question. Are you the Pharisee or the tax collector? And don't answer it too quickly because uh, the above average effect tells us that we're inclined to think more of ourselves than we actually are. And so I think usually we like to think we're the good guy. You know, if I'm ever watching uh, a a movie, uh, you know, I don't know, James Bond, I'm James Bond. You know, I like to be the good guy in the movie. We don't usually think of ourselves as the bad guy. But what if sometimes you and I were more like the Pharisee? Might it be the case that sometimes we are not poor in spirit, but we're actually rich in spirit? Could it be the case that sometimes we live like the Pharisee with a sense of self-reliance? I know I do. I know that there's pride and self-righteousness in my heart. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, all of us live like this sometimes. Here's what it looks like. If you judge others by their looks, by their outward appearances, whether that's based on their wealth or their race or their gender or their education, then you are being rich in spirit. If you compare yourself with others when you approach God, or if you look down upon those who are not like you, those who are not as hardworking, moral, righteous, disciplined, upright, Bible-believing, and Jesus-trusting, if you look down upon those people, If you walk away from conversations with those people, then the kingdom of heaven is not for you. Matthew 5, 3 says it's not the rich in spirit that receive the smile of God. It's not the rich in spirit who receive the kingdom, but it's the poor in spirit. It's those who are spiritually bankrupt. It's those who know they don't deserve God's grace, but go to him anyway and get it. And for the original audience, this would have been such a a relief. You know, I could just picture these guys, oh, Thank you. Finally, somebody believes in me. Someone accepts me. The creator of the universe blesses me. This is good news. This is gospel news. But some of you still probably disagree. Um, I'm sure there's some people in the audience, you know, you hear all this talk about poor in spirit. and You think, well, that sounds like a self-esteem problem or that's not what my psychologist told me. And uh, so some of us kind of wrestle with this whole thing of being poor in spirit. And if that's you, I would just remind you of the name of the most successful group support system for addicts. Does anybody know what it is? AA, yeah, Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the most successful support system for addicts, and there's lots of other groups like it that kind of borrow some of its principles. And the first principle, the first step in all of these successful addiction programs is that we are powerless over our problems. And where do you think AA got this? Well, I happen to know that they got it from Jesus. You see, the first beatitude is really saying the same thing. It's saying that we need to step out and realize that our problems are beyond ourselves. 
And Jesus is telling us that this principle doesn't just work in this one kind of narrow area of life. It doesn't just work with alcohol, but it works cosmically. It works in every single area of your life. The fact that your problems are beyond yourself, that's the case in your marriage. That's the case with your friendships. That's the case with your job. And realizing that and living into that frees you to being poor in spirit. It's not about having a poor self-image or poor self-esteem. It's certainly not about hating yourself. You matter to God. You were created by King Jesus, and therefore you are His treasured possession and created in His image. So you do matter, but at the same time, you are a broken vessel, and you need to come to terms and come to grips with the fact that you are powerless over your problems. And if you know this, if you feel this deep down in your bones, then this text says that you will be blessed and approved and congratulated by God. And so this is where we start. There's two examples of this in the book of Matthew that I just absolutely love because it's these two uh, polar opposite people. And in Matthew 8, it talks about this Roman centurion. And then in Matthew 15, he talks uh, about this Samaritan woman. And these people are on polar sides of the socioeconomic system. But what unites them is that they both go to Jesus because they're helpless to heal the ones they love. Desperate circumstances unite them. So in Matthew 8, there's this centurion soldier, this man who commands a century of fighting men, a hundred fighting men. He has power. He's pretty high on the totem pole. And he comes to Jesus, this Jewish, poor, traveling teacher. And here's what he says in Matthew 8. Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. You see, the centurion realizes Jesus' authority and sovereignty and he placed his trust in him. The, the centurion realizes that he has a problem that no psychologist or doctor or lawyer or life coach or self-help book can fix. Only King Jesus could fix it. And so he goes straight to the source and he puts his trust in Jesus and he lowers himself and he becomes poor in spirit. And because of that, his servant is eventually healed. We also find this with a Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. She pleads with Jesus, even argues with him until he'll heal her daughter. Here's what it says in Matthew 15. The Canaanite woman came from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon and came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I, only, I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. But the woman came and knelt before him and pled, Lord, help me, she said. And eventually Jesus does help her. And eventually Jesus praises her faith. Eventually Jesus praises the fact that she was poor in spirit. And what the centurion and the Samaritan teach us is that true faith, the heart of our faith, is about poverty of spirit. The, the, the the beating heart of our faith is, a, is the fact that God blesses the broken and helps the helpless. And so in our walk with God, we come to Jesus with empty hands and with empty hearts, and we ask him to fill those hands. We live with this continual need of dependency on God. This is, we were created for this, and we rebelled against it in the garden. But 
God's job description is still the same. He still fills us. He still wants us to go to Him. And that all starts with poverty of spirit. It all starts from a heart that wants to be helped. If you are poor in spirit, says Jesus, yours is the kingdom of heaven. This is incredible. Uh, poor people usually don't have access to kingdoms. I don't know if you've looked around lately. You can't even be elected uh, to the Congress without millions of dollars behind you. You know, usually power and money go together and offices are more or less bought. And this was the case uh, in United States and it was the case in Rome. But the kingdom of heaven is different than that. The kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdom of Rome. It's not like the kingdom of the United States. The kingdom of heaven is where the reign of God exists. It's not a territory or a place like Los Angeles or Phoenix. But it's wherever God's will and mission are extended in our world. It's this fresh work that Jesus is launching where he's turning to poor people who admit their need for God and he's blessing them and honoring them and restoring them by his coming kingdom. A kingdom that will set right all wrongs. Listen to James, the brother of Jesus. He talks about this um, in his letter. And I love this passage. It's from James uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, dear brothers and sisters. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit a kingdom promised to those who love him? See, those who are poor in the world, these are the, the nothing. These are the nobodies. These are, these are the zeros in the world. By the world's terms, they don't measure up. They're just a statistic. And, and I think some of you today might even feel like just a statistic. Maybe you feel underloved or undervalued. Maybe there's a sin that's kind of been haunting you for months and you just can't get away from the guilt of that. And if that's you, what God is inviting you to do this morning is to admit to Him that you are poor in spirit. And so for the people who are on this side of the room, if you are poor in spirit and you have cheated on your spouse, God is for you. Or if you have had an abortion and you are poor in spirit and you are spiritually bankrupt, God is on your side and he is in the business of blessing you. And if there's others out there, if there's people on this side of the room, that there's just certain websites and you can't stay away from them. And if I put your search history on the screen right here and showed everyone, it would be a really awkward moment. If that's you, God wants to bless you as well. And if you just come to him broken, if you just come to him with empty hands, he will do that. His approval will be on your life. The smile of God and the roaring applause of heaven will be yours. It doesn't matter what we've done or what we've gone through. God is inviting each one of us today to acknowledge our deep need for him and to repent of our wrongdoing and to cry out, for him for mercy and when we go to him for help he gives us help god cares for you according to james for he has chosen those who are poor to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom this is radical this is upside down this doesn't make full sense but for some reason those who are poor get to be rich and those who are poor get to someday in the new creation i mean do you guys realize this someday all of us will be kings and queens on a new earth where we're going to sit on thrones together that's coming. That's in the future sometimes. But the difficulty with the kingdom is, is what, it's what theologians call the already and the not yet. So that's the not yet. That's the consummated kingdom. But right now we kind of live in this tension and, and the gospel's going forth and the kingdom is advancing and people are getting saved and being healed and we rejoice in that. But our loved ones are still dying. 
and we're still struggling with the lust of the flesh. It's kind of like the crest of a wave and it's coming at us and it's overhead and it's enveloping us and it's here, but it's, it's not fully here. It's, it's kind of passing by and it sucks us up and someday that wave is going to crash and we're going to be part of this giant ocean of the kingdom of God where it is all in all. It's kind of like the dawning of a sun. You see it coming over the horizon and you see the colors of, of blue and pink and purple just kind of dancing over the horizon and you know it's there and you know it's coming up, but it's not fully there yet. My favorite illustration of this is the distinction in World War II between D-Day and V-Day. Between D-Day and V-Day. When the Allies established the Normandy beachhead on D-Day, the war in Europe was really won. Uh, the back of the enemy was broken, and, uh, and more or less they didn't stand a chance. Yet V-Day, when the peace treaty was signed, remained in the future. And between those two points, more soldiers were killed than at any time during the war. The war went on. The outcome was certain, but the war went on. And I think most of us, if we're honest, we feel that tension in our souls, don't we? We long for the kingdom. We crave the kingdom. We know that Christ has triumphed over evil, but we still have the spiritual warfare that is on us. And we know that Christ has died for sins and we're alive with Christ, but on Monday, tomorrow, there's going to be that sin that you're going to struggle with and you're going to fight and you're going to say, why do I, ugh, I just want to be done with this. I just want to be in the new kingdom. It's because you live in this tension. We know that the power of God dramatically heals people. I've seen it supernaturally heal people. Maybe you have too. But then there's certain loved ones who die. And, and friends that die. And, and so we, we, we kind of wrestle with, with it's here, but it's, it's not yet here. And we have to live in this tension. And while we're there, we, we long and we crave and we hunger for more of the kingdom, for more of God, for more of his will to be done on earth. And so we pray the Lord's Prayer with Jesus. Thy kingdom come, come now. Thy will be done now on earth as it is in heaven. We want heaven and earth to overlap and interlock. And we want that kingdom to... to crash over us like a wave, but it's not here yet. And so we're waiting and waiting and waiting. As I wrap up the sermon, I want to read to you a quote, which I think beautifully illustrates this point by Frederick Buckner. And as I read it, I just encourage you to get in a place where you could hear this. Uh, maybe sit up straight in your seat, take a couple deep breaths. If you want to close your eyes, do that. If you just want to follow along on the screen, you're welcome to do that, but really let your heart hear these words. If we only had eyes to see and ears to hear and wits to understand, we would know that the kingdom of God in the sense of holiness, goodness, beauty is as close as breathing and is crying out to be born both within ourselves and within our world. We would know that the kingdom of God is what all of us hunger for above all things, even when we don't know its name or realize that it's what we've been starving to death for. The kingdom of God is where our best dreams come from and our truest prayers. We glimpse it at those moments when we find ourselves being better than we are and wiser than we know. We catch sight of it at the moment of crisis when a strength seems to come to us that is greater than our own strength. The kingdom of God is where we belong. It is home. And whether you realize it or not, 
I think we are all homesick for it. Are you homesick for that today? Do you long for that? Is there a sadness in your spirit which is most certainly poor? Listen again to the words of Jesus. Blessed or approved of God are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, both now and forever. God blesses the broken and he heals the helpless. So how will you this week live into that? How will you this week admit to God and to yourself, maybe for the first time, that you are broken and that you need help? How will you go to Him and surrender? Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning. We come to You broken. We come to You needy. We come to You as as men and women who don't have it all figured out, who are not as godly and mature as we want to be, Father. And too often we live on our own spiritual resources, but this morning all of us cry out like the Pharisee and the, or like the tax collector and the Samaritan um, that we need mercy, Father. We are sinners and we are continually, always, every day in need of a Savior, in need of somebody to rescue us, in need of somebody to help shoulder our burdens and our problems, Father. And so I pray that in every area of life, Father, no matter who we are and where we've come from, whether we're um, a husband or a wife or a child or a friend or a co-worker, Father, that you would enable us to be spiritually bankrupt, to be uh, poor, Father, to not be self-reliant, but to go to Jesus for help. We pray this. In the powerful name of King Jesus, amen.